All right. Will you pray with me? Let's jump into the Word of God, adults. Heavenly Father, we love you. We do. We worship you. We want to honor you with our time in the Word. We want to honor you as we study. We want to show ourselves to be approved workmen who rightly handle the Word of truth with no need to be ashamed. And God, the word of truth is controversial in our day. To take a stand on God's word means that we are standing in an odd camp, but that's where Christians got to stand. And so Jesus, would you allow us by the power of the Holy Spirit to learn from you today? In Jesus' holy name, amen. Years ago, there was a large statue, which most of you all have seen before, a large statue which was erected in the Andes Mountains on the border of Argentina and Chile. Now, you probably know it. It's the big statue of Jesus Christ. That's, you've probably seen it in movies or on posters, or maybe you've been down there and traveled there before, and you've seen this huge statue that stands up on the mountain peaks between Chile and Argentina. It's called Christ of the Andes. Well, that statue was supposed to symbolize a pledge between the two countries, that as long as the statue stands, there would be peace between the two countries. Well, you'd think that would work pretty well. There's a big statue. It symbolizes it. You can see it all the time. Pretty funnily, what happened right after the statue was erected was that the Chileans began to protest that they had been slighted in the erection of this statue. The statue had its back turned to Chile and was facing Argentina. And so you can imagine, the Chileans were saying, hey, this isn't fair. Why, why do we get the back of Jesus and they get the face of Jesus? And it began to cause an argument immediately after the statue was put there, which was supposed to cause peace in the first place. And just when tempers were at their very highest, you can just imagine the scene, just when they were at their very highest, an editorial came out that basically satisfied all the people. And the editorial read this. It said, the people of Argentina need more watching over than the Chileans. Isn't that funny? Can you imagine that? The people of Argentina need more watching over than the Chileans. Now, what he did in that moment was he totally calmed the tempers. He totally calmed the tempers of everyone who was arguing about it. And they began to laugh about it. And they said, you know what? This isn't worth arguing over. This is not worth arguing over the peace over. We're going to let it go. Now, how do you deal with disagreements? My guess is there's two types of people in this room. Person number one is naturally a people pleaser. Uh, and if you're a people pleaser, you probably know it. And your tendency is when it comes to disagreement, your tendency is to just back off and not enter into disagreement at all, not argue at all, to just basically kind of not deal with it. And there can be a good side to that, but there can also be a shadow side to that, which is sometimes when the law is being broken, when something is wrong, you don't step in and stand up for what needs to take place. On the other side, there's some folks who are naturally fighters. And, and, and if you're naturally a fighter, you're going to jump in. You're going to debate. You're going to want to win the argument right now. You're not going to let the little things go. You've got to make it right. And if that's your natural tendency, there can be a really good thing there that you fight for truth. But the shadow side to it, the shadow side is that sometimes you are just bludgeoning people over stuff that you don't need to fight over. And you become known as someone who doesn't know how to let it go. Here's the question I have, not whether you're a people pleaser or whether you are a fighter. The question is, how does Christ change you? Whoever you were naturally before you made Jesus your Lord and Savior, that's one thing. My question is, Jesus changes you from the inside out. He changes your identity, he changes your personality, he changes the way you interact with people. So how does Jesus change the way you interact with other people, specifically within the household of Jesus Christ, within the church? 
Now, in today's text, Paul gives us some really practical advice. I mean, this is about as practical as it gets. Just so you know, most of Paul's writings, when you look at like Ephesians, Galatians, 1st, 2nd Thessalonians, the way these books are structured in the Bible, the first half is usually a lot of doctrine. What has Jesus done for you? Get me the gospel. Show me who Jesus is. The second half and the later chapters are really practical advice for Christian living. If this is true, then here's how you're going to live. And we're getting into, we have been in for a few weeks, some of the really practical chapters in Romans. Remember, we're going verse by verse through this entire book. We've already gotten the gospel, Romans 1 through 8, climaxing in chapter 8. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. What does that mean? If you've trusted in Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter what your past is. It doesn't matter what mistakes you've made. You could be the most heinous sinner on this planet. And if you trust in Jesus Christ, he declares you righteous, fully forgiven. That's Romans chapter 8. And then Romans chapter 9 says, if that's true, through the rest of the book of Romans, here's how you live. And the larger framework of today's passage is actually rooted in the second half of chapter 13. Where, G, where Paul reminds us of Jesus' words that we are to love one another, to love your neighbor as yourself. That's Romans 13, 9. Think of that. Love your neighbor as yourself. You know, I, I love having us pause on individual verses that we take for granted because, you know, you get in the Christian church long enough, you've heard that phrase, love your neighbor as yourself. That's very hard to do. That's very hard to do. The context we're working in is loving your neighbor as yourself. And here's the big idea. And I'm going to introduce a vocab, vocab term for you here. On matters of Christian liberty, some things are just not worth fighting over. On matters of Christian liberty, some things are just not worth fighting over. Romans 14, verses 1 through 6. Let's start there. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he, give thanks to, he, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and give thanks to God. All right, let's pause right there. Interesting little passage there, some weird phraseology that Paul begins to use, and we've got to work through it to understand it. Now, whenever, if you want to be a good Bible student, the way you read the Bible is the first thing you want to understand is what did the text mean to its original hearers? So often when people begin to read the Bible, the, the first mistake they make is they, they immediately say, what does this mean to me? And they begin reading their own desires and their own heart into the passage. We want to know what did Paul mean when he wrote it and the first century readers heard it, what would they have heard Paul say? And then, from that, we can understand what Paul meant, and we can begin to draw principles to apply to our life. Now, I'm going to take us on that journey today with this passage. I'm going to show you how to do that. Let's begin at the high level. There's this comparison that's being made in this passage between those who Paul calls strong in faith and those who he calls weak in faith. It almost sounds insulting, doesn't it? Weak in faith people. But let's actually get after. What's Paul getting after here? My first task is to understand this 
this divergent life, those who are strong in faith and those who are weak in faith, and what it means. Now, the first thing we see in the passage is he says, do not quarrel over opinions. You see that, verse 1? As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Not to quarrel over opinions. Paul is striving for unity in the church. You've got these strong in faith people, these weak in faith people. He says, look, look, don't let quarrels begin to divide you. You're stronger than that. You're knit together by Jesus Christ. Now, when he speaks of an opinion, do not quarrel over opinions. What is an opinion? An opinion is not a fact or something that's clear from the Word of God. Something that's clear from the Word of God is not an opinion. It's a law. It's clear. God, we know exactly what the Bible says. Something that an opinion is maybe a definition like this. A personal belief about how to best honor Jesus as it pertains to practical life that's not necessarily rooted in the Word of God. Now, what do I mean by that? In this room are people who come from all different sorts of traditions. Some of you come from traditions of ways you worshipped Christ, ways you did life before coming into this particular church family. And we're a non-denominational church, which means we really accept people from many different denominational, Christian denominational backgrounds. And when you come into this place, you might have very different specific traditions than how you practice faith. Some of you might come from the Greek Orthodox background. And then they got some religious traditions and how they practice ways that were very specific to them. Some of you come from other denominational backgrounds. When it comes to matters of opinion, of specifically how you're to worship Jesus, we're to make sure we don't quarrel over those things. We don't quarrel over those things. Paul's main point is this. You're going to disagree over, if you're going to disagree, disagree over the things that are really meaningful and fight for those. Hold for the core doctrines of the faith. And on issues not, not central to Christian faith, just let it go. Paul's understanding of strong and weak faith in this passage, and in others like it, that we're going to get to, is that strong faith is referring to a brother or a sister in Christ who has a very mature understanding of the doctrine of Christian liberty. Now, if you don't know those terms, Christian liberty, I want you to learn those today. Before you leave today, I want you to understand Christian liberty. A strong brother in faith has a strong and mature understanding of Christian liberty. A weak brother in faith has an immature understanding of Christian liberty. What's Christian liberty? Christian liberty essentially means that the Christians, Christians are freed in respect to such activity that is not expressly forbidden in the pages of the Bible. So unless God forbids that we do it, there is freedom to practice our life according to the way that we live. Unless God's declared it to be sin, it's not sin. And there's freedom. Christian liberty says that we have freedom. Now let me read to you from the Westminster Catechism. This is a really important statement from the Westminster Catechism, a very famous doctrine in the Christian church, on the doctrine of Christian liberty. It says this, God alone is Lord of the conscience. That's your inner working of what is right and wrong. God alone is Lord of the conscience and has left it free from the doctrines and the commandments of men which are in many things contrary to his word. So the doctrines of men at times are contrary to his word. Or beside it, in matters of faith or worship. So that to believe such doctrines or to obey such commands from men out of conscience is to betray true liberty of conscience. Now what does that mean? The only thing that can bind your conscience on what is right for you to do and what is wrong for you to do is the word of God. 
That's the one authority in a Christian's life that can tell you what is fundamentally right and what is fundamentally wrong. It doesn't matter what I say. (laughs) If I'm coming up here and I'm telling you as your pastor something that is not clear from the pages of Scripture, I'm not your authority. It's the Word of God that's your authority. If anybody else, if a friend is trying to tell you something of how you ought to live your Christian life and what is wrong and what is right for you to do, then it's ultimately the Word of God. If they're telling you things that are true from the Word of God, that's what you're bound by. Christian liberty and binding the conscience. Anyone who tries to bind your conscience, detach from the Word of God, is not speaking to the Christian. Now, Paul brings up two ideas. The strong brother has a very mature understanding of Christian liberty, while the weak brother has a very immature understanding of Christian liberty. And he brings up these two ideas that were very important back in the first century that aren't so important now. So we're going to have to understand them. Being a vegetarian and practicing particular religious holidays. Being a vegetarian and practicing particular religious holidays. Okay. Now what was the deal with being a vegetarian? Romans 14 verse 2. One person believes that he may eat anything. That's the mature brother in Christ, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Now, what's what's that have to do with? What does being a vegetarian have to do with worshiping Jesus? Let's get back to the first century. Let's try to understand this. The early first century church was a strong mixture of Jews and Gentiles. And Jewish people in the Old Testament law had uh, these laws, these dietary laws, that distinguished them from the countries and the nations around them. They weren't able to eat certain things. They weren't able to eat certain types of you know, uh, they weren't able to eat pork. They weren't able to eat other types of particular marine animals like shellfish and things like that. Now, they were able, able to eat other meats, but not pork. Now, some Jewish traditions had such a desire to honor God deep in their hearts. They saw God's law, and they wanted to honor him so much that they said, you know what? We're not even going to risk it. No meat. I mean, I don't ever want to even like accidentally eat a piece of steak that was sitting next to a piece of bacon. So just, just so I don't ever do it, I'm not going to risk the steak. I'm just going to be a vegetarian. And so you had a number of Jews that were coming out of a doctrinal lane like that that said, you know what, I see the Old Testament law, and I'm, I, I'm not even going to risk it. I'm just going to be a vegetarian to honor God. See their desire? What's their desire? Their desire is to honor God. Deep inside of them, this is not a sinful desire. This is a desire that says, man, I love God, and I'm willing to sacrifice for the name of God. Now, what's the reality? In the New Testament, Jesus has declared all foods clean, okay? Where do I get that? Mark chapter 7, verse 18 and 19. Jesus says, Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him, since it enters not into his heart, but into his stomach and is expelled? Thus, Jesus declared all foods clean. So why do Christians in the New Testament era believe it's okay to eat pork because those particular dietary restrictions which were part of the ceremonial and unclean and clean laws of the Old Testament have been fulfilled in Christ and Jesus specifically said all meat is clean. Now the mature brother in Christ has a very mature understanding of their Christian liberty. They're free to eat meat. Christians are able to eat pork and not feel guilty about it. Have a piece of bacon. That's New Testament, right? Now, the immature follower of Christ does not have the clarity on that particular thing yet. There's still work. Now, you can imagine that. If you come from certain traditions and your traditions are deeply woven into the way you live life, you can understand why that is. Sometimes things just take a while to learn and to undo ways you've done things in the past. It's not necessarily sinful. It's just not the way you did it. 
So these vegetarian brothers and sisters, you can imagine this playing out at our church, can't you? Someone who has this desire to honor the Lord, hey, hey, we're going out to Portillo's after service today, says the mature brother in Christ. And they're looking over to the person who, as Paul would say, is a weaker brother in Christ, and, and that person says, isn't Portillo's a, a hamburger and hot dog joint? And then the strong followers of Christ say, yeah, yeah, you want to come join us? And, and he says, oh, oh, I'm a, I'm a Christian. I don't do Portillo's. Sorry about that. I'm going to go to Sweet Greens, okay? So I'm going to go to, I'm going to, go to Sweet, you don't know Sweet Greens is a salad joint in the West Loop. I'm going to go to Sweet Greens. I'm going to eat my vegetarian meal over there. And you can almost imagine a snarkiness in the commentary, can't you? You see how these divisions begin to, to play out? And this is why Paul is addressing it. These are, matters, these are matters of Christian liberty that people of different traditional backgrounds, not fully understanding Christian liberty, and they're disagreeing and it's causing people to be like, did you hear what he just said to me? And then you're like, what are they thinking about me when I go home? You see how this just foments inside the church? Romans 14, 3, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. What's that saying? Saying, look, don't pass judgment on one another. Don't have a snarky attitude. We have Christian liberty in the word of God, and we're going to be in different places on some traditional backgrounds, but that's not your job to be the judge over that person. So long as what they're doing is not directly conflicting with the clear word of God in a sinful way, you can live in Christian harmony with someone who disagrees with you on matters of traditional background. You don't need to let that cause quarreling among you. If you don't see your traditional preferences for how church ought to be done directly in the pages of Scripture, don't force your opinion on anybody else. Let me say that one again. If you don't see your traditional preferences for how church ought to be done directly in the pages of Scripture, don't force your opinion on anybody else. That's what Paul's saying right there in verse 3. What about the holy days? That was the vegetarian piece. What about the holy days? Second issue that was dividing the church back then was that some people, same people, right, coming out of a strong Jewish background where they practice certain festivals and certain holy days, not necessarily sinful to declare a certain day as a day of celebration to the Lord. It's not sinful. It's not required. Some of the Jewish traditional days are not required to celebrate in the Bible, but they, coming out of the tradition, loved celebrating those particular days. They meant something to them. They didn't want to lose it just yet. They were, they were still practicing, and it was a way of worship for them. Romans 14, 5. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. What does that mean? So long as your tradition of how you worship is not in direct contradiction to the word of God, we can choose to live in harmony with each other. We, we can let those disagreements go. What we do as a corporate church might not meet everyone's traditional background and what you like to do for church. That's okay. When we come into this place, everyone's going to give and take a little bit. We're a family of Christ. We've got some different backgrounds, some different traditions, some ways we do things. To be honest with you, even meeting in a big room and having a lecture-style sermon is kind of a particular traditional thing we do as Western Christians. It's not necessarily commanded from the Word of God to do things specifically this way. Preaching is, but not necessarily the way we do it. There's traditions built into a lot of the way we do church. Some things you got to learn to let go. Now, let me make sure I drive this home before we jump to our day and age, because there's some very important practical applications I want to draw. Remember, the weak brother is not in sin. 
They're not in sin. If they were in sin, it would, requ- it would require everyone around them to call out the sin and to say what you're doing is against God's word. The thing they're doing is not a sinful issue. Biblical knowledge often just takes time to sink in. Now, let me read to you from another passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 7 and 8. Very similar passage where Paul deals with the same issue. Paul says this, However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols that came out of this odd background, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off, off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. Same, similar situation. There were some people in the New Testament church. There was this food and they were afraid they were going to eat food that had been offered to an idol at some point in the past. In our modern culture, we don't do this, but many cultures around the world do practice the same thing. I lived in Thailand where in the morning you'd go out to a little physical statue idol and there'd be food laid out to it. And some people would eat that food. And other people would be like, no, I can't eat the food if it was offered to an idol. Paul says, look, the idol's not real. It doesn't matter if you eat it or not. But if your conscience is really concerned about it, don't eat it. It's not something to, to, you know, parse hairs over. Why is the weaker brother so concerned with these religious practices of former tradition? The weaker brother is a Christian. He just does not have a full, mature understanding of his Christian liberty yet. Number two, the weaker brother is honestly trying to honor the Lord. This is what you have to see here. Verse 6, the one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor for the Lord and gives thanks to God. This is not an issue of legalism. What is legalism? Legalism is where someone believes if I do certain laws and certain things, then God will be pleased with me. This is not legalism. That's not what this is. If it were legalism, anytime Paul confronts legalism in the Bible, he basically throws his fist down. He says, he calls that person, don't don't you ever think that you are in favor with God based on following certain laws. That is not the Christian way. A Christian does not earn favor with God by doing certain things, by living certain ways. The way a Christian gets made right with God is by trusting in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. That's it. Until you have fully placed your faith in Jesus and you sit underneath Jesus' blood that was shed for you that you can have life, there's no forgiveness of sin. You can all day long come to church every week if you want to, but unless you've truly made Jesus your Lord, turned from your sin and trusted in him, you'll be condemned. But once you place your faith truly in Christ, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Now legalism says, yeah, but you've got to still do this for God to be pleased with you. There's certain laws you've got to follow. No, no, we don't follow God's law to earn his favor. We follow his law out of a posture of knowing we've already found favor with Christ. We joyfully follow his law, knowing we can never earn one more bit of favor with him, whether we do or don't follow those laws. Jesus has paid it all. Now listen to Paul's reasoning, verses 7 to 12. For none of us live to himself, 7 to 9, none of us live to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. Did you hear that verse? I just got to make sure we say that over in our heads. Ready? If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. If you want a drumbeat like an anthem for your life every day, that's it. 
If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. That's what a Christian is. That's what a Christian says. They say everything else and how this all fits together, here's the one thing I know. If I'm going to be alive on this earth, I'm living for Jesus. And if God takes me today before I get home to see my family, I die for Jesus Christ. That's my life. That's what I stand for. And the Christian then infused by that way of seeing the world, walks into a church family where there's so many things we could bicker about. And we say this, you know what we got in common? Every person in here, we're living for Jesus Christ and we're dying for Jesus Christ. And when you begin to have that language fostered in a church, all of a sudden the other things that you could disagree on just don't seem like it's worth to disagree on. You're like, why, why would I argue over the way we do chair setup? Do you know these are arguments that happen? Why, why? Some people like straight lines. Some people like a rainbow arrangement. <laughs> Do you know there's actual studies on church engagement and how engaged people will be based on the way the, church, the chairs are arranged? This is how big the arguments get. Over silly things. If I live, I live to the Lord. And if God takes me home today, I die for the Lord. That's what unites the follower of Christ. And on non-central issues, we learn to let it go. Because we're all coming from a whole bunch of different backgrounds. And we got to do this life thing together as Christians. Now let's fast forward to our time. What do we do with this? Well, I'll tell you what. We're in a time where there's a lot of things to disagree over as Christians. <laughs> there's a lot to disagree over as Christians. And if you're watching carefully, Christians are disagreeing over it. And so I'm going to step into uh, probably a space that I'm going to get emails on when I get home today, because you're going to disagree with what I have to say. And you know what? That's great. The reason I'm doing this is because I'm trying to make this passage really practical. Because if email existed in Paul's day, he would have got a bunch of emails when he talked about vegetarianism after he preached on that. So let's talk about the things that are really interesting to us. One of the things we tend to do in our modern day is oversimplify the moral landscape. And what I mean by that is, there's these practical, real-world life decisions Christians have to make. Let's say wearing a mask, okay? There's these practical, real-world life decisions Christians have to make. And there's all this data coming at us from a million directions. One person read this journal, another person read this journal. One person watched this YouTube video, another watched this YouTube video. 10,000 doctors said it this way, 10,000 other doctors said it this way. And then here we are, and we've got to try to make sense of this. Now, one of the things we tend to do is oversimplify the moral landscape. And we say, you know what? Here's a verse that matches the way I think it should be done. Therefore, everyone should think the same way as me. And then we have our opinions. And we try to lord it over other people. Now, what happens when we simplify the moral landscape is we take out all the work of wisdom searching. Wisdom is when you, you listen, you learn, you, you ask the experts, you go to the Word of God and you find out what does God say on this. And by the way, there is a lifetime of learning what God's Word says on the issues. A lifetime of it. I mean, we, we've, we scratched the surface on Sundays. It's a lifetime of pouring over it. We don't need to simplify the moral landscape. Let's jump in. Mask wearing. Now, I want to make sure you get this Christian liberty and, uh, and, bur and uh, binding the conscience. Remember, no one can bind your conscience except on issues of the Word of God. Okay. Today, I'm pretty sure, last time I checked, 
you don't have to wear a mask when you're walking down the street in Illinois, in Chicago. If I'm wrong, I apologize. Based on the, based on the Chicago law, it changes on a day-to-day basis. And from what I understand, they're asking you to wear a mask when you go into institutions, and basically they're saying, they're suggesting wearing a mask at other times, but if you're walking down the street, you're just kind of going about your business, you don't have to wear a mask everywhere you go. Now, imagine two people get into a conversation, two Christians. Two Christians walk outside after this, they see one person take their mask off, and they're not wearing it when they're walking to their car. And they're talking to each other over in the corner and they're having a conversation. Now a Christian over here says, they should be wearing their mask. Why aren't they wearing a mask? And they begin to have this division form in them. Now, can this Christian over here bind the conscience of this Christian over here on mask wearing? If you've understood my sermon, the answer is no, they cannot. They can't. So long as the law of the land says you don't have to do it, they have Christian liberty. It's not a word of God issue. They have Christian liberty. And especially what the church fathers have taught us is on issues that are, what's the word? Debatable issues, I think is the word they used. On debatable issues especially, no one should be binding anyone's conscience. So we shouldn't be arguing with each other about who wears a mask and who doesn't once we go into places outside. Now, let's change the scenario a little bit. Let's say the government binds you. Let's say the government comes in and the government says, no, you know what? When it comes to mask wearing, we want you wearing a mask all the time when you walk outdoors. Am I getting relevant enough for us yet? (laughs) Okay. We want you wearing a mask every time when you're walking outdoors. Now, should the Christian submit to the governing authorities? Yes. Why? Is it the governing authorities that binds our conscience? No, <laughs> it's the word of God. And what does Romans 13, 1 say? Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, right? So on a disputable issue, right? Mask wearing in public is a disputable issue. There's science and there's academia all over the place on this. And it's difficult to figure it out. If the governing authorities come in and say, here's what we're asking you to do, you can, on the doctrine of Christian liberty and understanding that the word has bound your conscience, say, you know what, on a disputable issue, that's an easy one for me. I might disagree all day long with it. I might have my facts. I'm just going to go with it because my conscience is bound by the word of God. Okay? You following me so far? Our email, you're already typing your emails. I get it. The question that comes to people's mind then is what about civil disobedience? What about civil disobedience? And, and in the last six months, I've gotten that question more often than anything else. Even what we're doing right now is this civil disobedience. The answer is no, this is not civil disobedience. Right now, the state of Illinois has guidelines for us as to how many, how many people we can gather with in a house of worship. Their guidelines are non-legal. So whether or not we go over the number they prescribed for us as a church, it's not a law thing. So there's no civil disobedience if we go far over it. There's wisdom in listening to the governing authorities and trying to be wise and, and not just being jerks about it. But we're not in civil disobedience if we go over the number they've prescribed for us. However... However, where does civil disobedience come into play? For the Christian, what civil disobedience is, is when the governing authorities tell you to do something that is in direct contradiction with the only thing that can bind your conscience, which is the Word of God. Let's do a biblical example for a second. In the Old Testament, the book of Daniel, you meet Daniel, and Daniel was told, you must pray and worship the king. And you're not allowed to pray to any other person but the king of the land. Well, Daniel, that was an easy one for Daniel. Who's Daniel going to pray to? God. I mean, 
right? Ten Commandments, have no other gods before me. Don't bow to anything that, I, that was made, right? He's going to worship God, and he practiced civil disobedience. And what happened to Daniel when he practiced civil disobedience? What happens to most people when they practice civil disobedience? He got thrown in the lion's den, and the Lord protected him. Okay? Now, what happens with civil disobedience in our day and age? So long as the governing authorities are not telling us to do anything that is not directly at odds with the word of God, then we are fine to submit to them. However, however, once they cross that line, our allegiance is to the word of God, not to the governing authorities of men. Does that make sense? Now, working that out is very difficult because sometimes there's this gray line and you begin to ask, have they gone past their legitimate authority? I'm asking that question right now. Have they? And I don't have a clear answer for you. And I don't think any pastor or church should make a blanket simplifying the moral landscape for all churches right now. It's a very messy time. And what we ought to do is recognize that God's assigned churches with different elders and every church is praying and asking God, how do they behave in this time? How do we do church? How do we operate? How do we wear masks? How do we do all of this? Because it's difficult. Okay, I'm trying to make this accessible to you. Christian liberty and binding the conscience. Now let me close with these last few words. One of the things I see more often than not when it comes to living this out is that oftentimes when we pass judgment on people, the way we pass judgment is not face-to-face but through gossiping. And I, I, I want to cut that right now. Because at least in Paul's day, they had the, the guts to have conflict face-to-face. <laughs> but when we take our disagreements and we, we do the same thing, we judge, we have these judgments over the other person, but rather than tell it to their face, we bring it home and we talk about it with other people, we harbor the thoughts in our minds. What we're doing is we're sowing actually worse dissent than if we have told the person to their face. What I need to know is when we disagree as brothers and sisters in Christ, we are called to see the other person as a brother and a sister, right? As brothers and sisters, we're knit together into a family. And, and, and what that means is that there's a stronger bind connecting all of us than anything that might dis, uh, divide us. Literally, the Christian is called to give up their life to serve another person, to give up their money to serve another person, to give up their time to serve the other person, to give up their vacations to serve the other person. That's the Christian life. And when that happens in the church, Christ gets glorified, and it's so clear that Jesus is working through the church. And when you take judgments over non-central issues and you begin to gossip about them behind, you basically undo all of it. You basically just say, all that stuff of Christian unity... It means nothing to me. And it shows incredible immaturity. And I want to fight for that. The days ahead are even more difficult than the days that we've gone through. We've got tough decisions to make as a church. Strive for Christian unity. Let me read to you one more time, 14.1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Now here's what I want to do. What are the things we agree on? Throughout church history, the church has agreed on core doctrinal issues, and we have brought these into creedal statements that we have repeated time and time again as a church. I'm going to have Nate Gehring come up right now, and Nate's going to lead us together in saying the Apostles' Creed. This is a traditional statement that reminds us of the core doctrines of what we believe. So if you go ahead and stand up, 
Nate's gonna remind us of this. Again, our projector is broken today, and so you can find this on, if you, on the, the lyrics page on the website, rafechennery.com slash lyrics are the words to it. If someone can have that, if you could share with the person next to you, and Nate's gonna lead us in closing out today's sermon through the Apostles' Creed.